Donald Trump heading to the scene of those January 6 crimes. The lead starts right now. Sources tell CNN that the former president wants to go to Capitol Hill, where he wants to add his two cents on the debate over who should be the next Speaker of the House. Do Republican lawmakers want him there? I'll talk to a Republican who's been in touch with him this week. Plus, one of the deadliest strikes in Ukraine since the beginning of Russia's invasion. A horrific scene of Putin's war. More than 50 civilians killed after a missile strike hit a grocery store. But first, for years, Donald Trump said, build the wall. But now it's President Biden picking up on the new construction. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. We're going to start today with our world lead and a number of major developments happening right now involving the immigration crisis and the chaos at the U.S. southern border. In just moments, we're going to hear from top Biden cabinet officials who are down in Mexico for meetings about the surge in migrants entering the United States, along with the flow of fentanyl and gun trafficking. These meetings come just hours after the Biden White House announced it is waiving dozens of federal laws in order to build more border Barriers. It's a move that President Biden tried to defend this afternoon after a number of critics pointed out that he promised not to build one additional foot of wall while he was running for president. Also today, a federal court heard arguments over the state of Texas's decision to install buoys on the Rio Grande River after the Biden administration sued the Lone Star State, trying to get them to remove them. Texas official claims that the buoys are meant to deter migrants from crossing the river, which can be deadly. All of this as governors and mayors across the U.S. are sounding the alarm about the increase in migrant arrivals in the U.S., depleting the state and city's already scarce resources, Republicans and Democrats begging the White House and the federal government for more help. CNN's MJ Lee starts off our coverage today with a closer look at the new barriers coming to the southern border and why President Biden says he was forced to make this move. The contentious political issue of the border wall. Don't worry, we're going to build that wall. Back in the spotlight. The Biden administration announcing that it is waiving 26 federal laws in order to greenlight the construction of a border wall in South Texas. The wall will be built using previously appropriated funds specifically earmarked for this purpose under the Trump administration. But the building of the wall clashing with this explicit promise that Biden made as a presidential candidate. There will not be another foot of wall constructed in my administration. His then opponent, Donald Trump, made construction of a border wall a major rallying cry in his re-election campaign. And we are now building that beautiful wall. And this powerful border wall is going up at record speed. The administration's decision coming amid a surge of migrants at the U.S. southern border. The administration facing intense pressure, including from some Democratic lawmakers, to get the situation under control. I am from a border state. And, you know, it's been a crisis on the border, you know, on and off for decades. And we've spent a lot of money on it, but, you know, we could always use more resources. You know, money for Border Patrol. President Biden himself defending the move on Thursday, saying he was powerless to stop the use of the funds. The border wall, the money was appropriated for the border wall. I tried to get them to reappropriate, to redirect that money. They didn't. They wouldn't. And in the meantime, 
There's nothing under the law other than they have to use the money for what is appropriate. I can't stop that. But Biden also bluntly rejecting the efficacy of a border wall. Do you believe the border wall works? No. And Jake, just one issue with that last answer we just heard from President Biden, that he doesn't believe that a border wall is effective, is that that appears to put him directly at odds with his own DHS secretary. Secretary Mayorkas wrote that there is an acute and immediate need to construct physical barriers to prevent unlawful entries into the United States. I think all of this is just one more reminder of what an intractable problem the border situation has been for this White House, as they have really tried to show that they are trying to take a humane approach when it comes to dealing with migrants, but at the same time, they are just trying to get a better handle on the situation at the border. Jake. So Mayorkas thinks that the barriers work, but President Biden does not. Interesting. MJ Lee, thanks so much. Let's bring in CNN's Alex Marquardt and Priscilla Alvarez. Uh, Alex, uh, what is the tone and message that these high-ranking Biden officials are are trying to deliver, it doesn't even seem like they're on the same page necessarily. Well, there, it, there's a lot of agreement, um, but there's also a, a lot of tension and some, some disagreements. Uh, they're certainly trying to convey the message that the various topics that they're discussing are of the utmost importance, and that's conveyed by the fact that they've sent this, some of the senior-most members of the cabinet, um, and that these are issues that need to be, to, to be dressed, imme- addressed immediately. They're, they're sending the message also that you know, this is a unique relationship. Uh, Mexico, of course, on our southern border, an immediate neighbor. It's the biggest trading partner, but you have these extreme extraordinary issues, these very important issues in this surge in migration, in the fentanyl crisis, in gun trafficking uh, that have to be uh, addressed immediately. There is a sense on the American side that Mexico could do more uh, when it comes to what the Biden administration does say is a historic uh, migrant crisis. Um, They do think uh, we, we also heard from the Mexican president earlier today about that new border wall section that's going up. He criticized it, calling it regression uh, and and irresponsible. So there's some disagreement there. And then on the fentanyl crisis, you have U.S. officials raising the alarm about all the fentanyl that's coming across the southern border that they say is made in Mexico that kills tens of thousands of Americans every year, the biggest killer of American adults between 18 and 49. The Mexican president saying, in fact, it's not made in Mexico, um, that it's not the cartels and the gangs, and in fact, it comes from China. So you've got major disagreements there. But these are all issues that they all agree must be addressed. Um, We're not necessarily expecting any kind of major resolution or initiative, but we are going to be listening closely now to this press conference to see if they did make any progress, if there is anything that they're going to be pushing forward on specifically. Most of the fentanyl comes through ports of entry, not smuggled uh, by the uh, undocumented immigrants that are crossing the border illegally. Correct. A lot of the precursor chemicals come from China and then are assembled in Mexico. Yeah, of course. Uh, And Priscilla, you've got some brand new reporting about deportation flights that are being restarted. This shift in policy really captures the entire problem for the Biden administration. We now know from senior administration officials that they are going to restart the direct deportation of Venezuelans to Venezuela. Why does this matter? There are 7.7 million Venezuelans who have fled that country. Many of them have moved north. It is a unique challenge for this administration. In fact, they are dealing with a historic wave, and that has been the issue for the administration. They didn't, they weren't really able to deport them to Venezuela, so they had to... Because we had such a bad relationship. We had frosty relations, and so they had to release them in the U.S. as they went through their immigration proceedings. And so now we are learning that they are actually going to deport them back to Venezuela. We're not clear yet as to why Venezuela is accepting them now. It has been years since we have done this, so the why now is still a question in terms of why Venezuela agreed to this. 
But this is really a moment that sheds light on the issue this administration faces, which is unprecedented mass migration of populations that previous administrations didn't necessarily uh, have to grapple with, and in hopes that they can start to lower those border crossings after, of course, leaning on Mexico repeatedly to try to stem that flow. All right, Priscilla Alvarez, Alex Marquardt, thanks to both of you. Appreciate it. Joining us now to discuss Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas. He represents the district in Texas where these new border barriers are being built. Congressman, thanks for joining us. You called the border barriers, quote, a 14th century solution to a 21st century problem. Uh, Why do you think it's a bad idea? Well, because if you look at it, look at where they put a fence down here in Texas. It's about a quarter mile away from the riverbanks. And as you know, the middle of the river is actually the international border border itself. So if you have a, a fence that's a quarter mile or a mile away, all you have to do is let people touch the riverbanks, walk a quarter mile, walk half a mile, and they're asking for asylum. In fact, heat maps that we sent to you you will see that most of the people coming across are along where there's already a fence because the fence is not in the middle of the river. So I want to see more personnel, more technology. But I would ask you to look at 2015 and 2019, Obama and Trump. Why did the numbers go down in those uh, those years? That's because we leaned into Mexico. We got Mexico to do more and they stopped them before they came over here. And plus President Obama was doing deportations. This administration is doing some deportations, but they don't show them. They're afraid to show people going back like President Obama, Secretary Jay Johnson did. You gotta show repercussions and you gotta show video of people going back and not just streaming across over here. Why do you think they're afraid to show the repercussions? Why do you think they're afraid to show people being deported and going back uh, south of the border? I'll I'll tell you, I had a conversation with somebody there, and this is what they said. We don't want to get our immigration advocates angry at us. That's it. That's what uh, somebody told me there. So, again, the immigration advocates, without due respect, that's one stakeholder. But what about the men and women in green? What about, more importantly, the border communities? We here at the border communities, and I'm in Laredo, People tell me we got to do something about the borders. And my district is 80 percent Hispanic. And they're saying control that border. And now that New York, now that Chicago, now that Washington, D.C. are seeing what we have felt for so many years. Now this voice about, you know, we got to control the border is being magnified because the mayors of New York, uh, you know, and the governor of Illinois, they have a bigger megaphone than some of us down here at the border. Have you spoken with anyone in the Biden administration about your opposition to this move to uh, construct more border barriers in your congressional district? Well, uh, yes, uh, yes, I have. And there's two questions to ask here. One is the president is right. He had to do and spend the money. It's the 1974 Impoundment Control Act, the fight between Congress and President Nixon at that time. I understand that. They had to do this before September 30th. I understand that. But the question that they have not answered to me was, why waive the immigration uh, uh, laws? There's nothing in the law that I know of that forces them to waive it. And I didn't know about it. And you will see that every president uh, or every secretary that has done that has been all under Republican administrations, except the current one that just did it yesterday. I don't understand the waiver uh, itself. I understand the Empowerment Control Act, 
but I just don't understand why they waive the environmental law. So you know me, uh, I'm strong on border security, but I want to make sure that we do it right. Have repercussions at the border, have more personnel at the border, have technology. I, I tell you that Mexican cartels have more drones than we do. Mm-hmm. And they fly them to uh, watch what we do. They watch, they pass small packets over here. We got to give Homeland Security the tools and the equipment and the personnel to fight this problem. House Republicans passed their version of a border bill, H.R. 2, earlier this year. Every Democrat voted against it. Are there aspects of their bill that you agree with that could possibly turn into bipartisan legislation if the Senate takes up some sort of border bill and it could all be hashed out in conference committee? Are there parts of it that you you could vote for? Yes, and before I answer that question, I also remind uh, my Republican friends that the last two appropriation bills that we passed Uh, except for two Republicans are still serving. There were nine, but seven are gone. Two Republicans are serving in the U.S. House, voted in favor to add $2.4 billion to Homeland. That's a 15% increase. They all voted against uh, supporting 2.4. So it's, they only see their version. Now, uh, to answer your question about HR2, I've looked at it. Some of it's things that I've asked for. Uh, Stone Garden, money for local governments, uh, uh, local police, uh, getting rid of uh, uh, Carrizo Cane, river roads, technology. There's a lot of things that we agree on. There's just a few things that they need to sit down, and I'll be happy to sit down with them because I don't come and visit the border for a few days or a few hours, should I say. I live here, and I talk to the men and women in green. So there are things that we can agree on. But I remind them that for the last two appropriation bills, they voted down, except for two Republicans are there right now, they voted down $2.4 billion for CBP uh, monies. What grade would you give President Biden for his handling of the border crisis? You know, there, there's improvement. Uh, and, you know, I did talk to the president. No, don't, I, don't want, I don't want to I don't want a grade school grade. I don't I don't need I don't need needs improvement. I, a, B, C, D, F. What grade would you give him? I, I'm, well, again, I'm not going to give you an A, B, C. All I can say is yeah, he can do better and I'm ready to work with him to all make right. it better. Uh, all we have to do is look at what we've done in the past and what works. Democratic Congressman Henry Cuellar of Texas. Good to see you, sir. Thanks for joining us today. Thank you, Jake. There are devastating images out of Ukraine today. A missile obliterated a cafe, killing dozens of innocent civilians, including a small child. CNN is on the scene. And that strike, that vicious strike, comes just as lawmakers here in Washington are fighting over whether to keep sending money and armaments to help Ukraine. In just a moment, I'll have a Republican congressman here, and we'll talk to him about all this. Stay with us. Back with our world lead, while the U.S. government is hobbled currently by its House Republican dysfunction and future aid for Ukraine is up in the air, today President Vladimir Putin announced that Russia successfully tested a nuclear-powered cruise missile. Putin also falsely claimed that Russia didn't start the war, a war that obviously began with his invasion of a sovereign nation. Most horrifically today, Russian forces fired a cruise missile strapped with a 1,000-pound warhead at a small eastern Ukrainian village, hitting a cafe and a shop. The missile killed more than 50 civilians, including a child, according to local officials. CNN's Fred Plaikin takes us to the scene of the carnage now, and a warning to viewers, some of the scenes we're about to show you are disturbing. Utter destruction and chaos after the massive explosion. 
As night fell, bodies still strewn across the area as search and rescue crews scoured the debris. This man, weeping in front of a body bag, too shaken to talk to us, we learned his name is Sergei, and the deceased was his wife. As you can see, this building was completely annihilated when it was hit by the missile. The Ukrainians are saying that this was an Iskander missile launched by the Russians. That is a very heavy missile uh, that is normally used to destroy large troop formations or even armored vehicles. And as you can see, it completely devastated this building right here. The Ukrainians say more than 50 people were killed. It's very difficult for them to identify some of the bodies because they are in such bad shape. They also say what was going on here was an event around a funeral, and they say that the people who were attending that event were all local folks. There was chaos, the chief investigator tells us. There was a fire which was extinguished by firefighters. Of course, evacuation measures were taken to get people out of the rubble. Obviously, all of this is still very fresh, and a lot of the search and rescue crews are still very much at work. We can see over there that some of the first responders are still busy sort of doing the forensics on the scene here and also still putting bodies into body bags. There's a lot of them laying around here and a lot of them being taken away by some of these crews here. One of the other things that we can see over there is that obviously this was some sort of recreational area. There still seems to be some sort of playground that was also heavily damaged when the missile hit. Ukraine's president visiting Spain, pinning the blame on Russia. Tragically, because of this inhuman terrorist attack, 50 civilians were killed during a funeral. Russia does this every day in the Kharkiv region, and only air defense can help. But that help will be too late for Sergei's wife and the others killed. The only thing he can do for her now is help the crews lift her body to be taken away. So, Jake's really some devastating scenes that we saw play out here as those rescue crews were still working. I can show you now we're here still at the scene that this building really was completely obliterated. It's the rubble that normally you would probably see after some sort of massive earthquake. This house just completely destroyed. The rescue crews, actually, Jake, in the meantime, have stopped working here. They say that they've realized there's absolutely no one that they are going to be able to save. They also say that some of those bodies that you just saw there in our report those are now being brought to a morgue, and then certainly they're going to try to do some identification. But they said because the bodies are in such bad shape, that alone is going to be extremely difficult. This was indeed a very powerful missile strike, Jake. CNN's Fred Plykin in eastern Ukraine among the carnage. Thank you so much. Coming up next, I'm going to talk to a Republican congressman who has questioned how much funding the U.S. should send to Ukraine. Does today's missile strike change his calculations? I'm also going to ask him about the new race for House Speaker and Donald Trump's influence since this congressman has been in touch with the former president. Also ahead, innocent Americans caught up in SWAT team action. The lead digs into why some are not being compensated when their homes and businesses are destroyed. This podcast is supported by Sleep Number. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number smart bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs, so you can choose what's right for each of you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores? Sleep Number does that. Only Sleep Number smart beds let you each choose your ideal comfort and support. Your Sleep Number setting. Sleep Number smart beds learn how you sleep and provide personalized insights to help you sleep better. All Sleep Number smart beds feature cooling, pressure-relieving comfort layers for soothing sleep throughout the night. Temperature balancing bedding is designed to move heat and moisture away when you're hot. When you're cool, they hold their energy to help warm you. Sleep better together. 
J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. In our politics lead, guess who may finally take that long-awaited trip to the U.S. Capitol that U.S. Secret Service refused to allow him to do on January 6, 2021? That's right, former President Donald Trump. This time, he wants to go meet with House Republicans as they try to figure out who should replace Kevin McCarthy as House Speaker. That's according to a source familiar with those discussions. With me now to talk about this, Republican Congressman Max Miller of Ohio, who once worked as an aide to former President Trump before being elected to the House last November. Congressman, thanks for joining us. Cleveland.com reports that you spoke to Trump three times on Tuesday, as McCarthy was being kicked out of his speakership by your fellow Republicans, Republican Congressman Mike Lawler just told my colleague Jim Chudo he does not think that Trump should come to Capitol Hill and interfere in any way in the speaker process. Do you know how Trump plans to weigh in or whom he might try to support? All of those are really great questions. And look, uh, my colleague, Mr. Lawler from New York, is a great friend of mine. And I can understand his hesitation. But President Donald J. Trump is still the leader of the Republican Party. And in terms of his influence of who he would like to see as speaker, he's yet to make that clear. Uh, I know where I would very much like to see the conference go in what direction. Uh, and But under you know President Donald Trump's policies, he's been a great president. But I believe that to get 218 votes within this conference, it's going to take a lot of us to come together and to be comfortable with the uncomfortable dealing with a lot of these issues. And I believe that we can get there, but I don't know if that would be the most helpful thing. I certainly welcome the president's presence. If he would like to come up to Capitol Hill, I'd love to see him. I'm a big fan of his. Other than that, I believe that we should work together as a conference to sort this out, to elect a speaker to 218 votes. So, so who do you like, Scalise or, or Jordan or some third option? So I want to be abundantly clear with a couple of things. One, I am all for Jim Jordan. Jim Jordan, I think, has been a tremendous uh, individual in our delegation. He's done a phenomenal job as the chairman of the Judiciary Committee. And I believe that he's brought real answers to the American people holding uh, the Biden administration and the Democrats accountable. And I also believe that he can unite our conference underneath to get to 218. And as a way forward in this as well, Jake, you know, I'm going to lose a lot of friends with this. I would like to see all Republican leadership change uh, in the House of Representatives from top to bottom. Jim Jordan, right now, he's not in leadership. That's why I'm supporting him. I would like to see him be speaker, but I would also like to see a new minority leader. I would also like to see a new majority whip. And I would like to see a change of uh, guard here in the House of Representatives in our conference. So you want just a complete changing of the guard for all Republicans leadership right now. Is that Trump's position as well, or are you only speaking for yourself? No, Jake, I'm speaking for myself. You know, being a freshman, being in Congress over the last 10 months, I believe that I've been one of the biggest team players within the body, within the Republican conference, doing everything that I could for Speaker McCarthy. And I want to make something very clear. He did achieve great conservative wins throughout his speakership in the House of Representatives. Mm -hmm. And that is something I am never going to back down from. 96% of our conference stood behind that man, while 4% and the eight, the gang of eight, who in my opinion are 
cowards upended government and did something incredibly disturbing. But that is my position. And I believe that we need a new face of Republican leadership that is going to take our conference into the same direction under the America First agenda and to continue to achieve the incremental wins we already were achieving under Speaker McCarthy. So let me ask you, so Kevin McCarthy credited Trump with his getting elected speaker in January. Why didn't Trump do anything to help him keep his speakership Tuesday? Surely Mr. Trump holds sway with those eight Republicans who voted to boot him. Well, I, you remember in the very beginning when we went through the speaker fight uh, yep. in the very beginning of this Congress and it took 15 rounds, you saw Matt Rosendale, a congressman out of Montana, I believe, reject the president's phone call. I believe that you remember that and the yeah. American people do as well. Sure. Uh, president Trump did absolutely nothing to oust Speaker McCarthy. In fact, he released a truth social post, Jake, that said Republicans need to stop infighting in Congress. Right, but and he didn't help I him either. Pres- that's, that's my point. He didn't, he, I, I, didn't oust him, but he didn't help him. Correct. He didn't do either. But my point is this, is that when I talk to him, and I can tell you what my conversation was with him, Jake, which is if I go down to the House floor, Mr. President, and I say, I just got off the phone with President Donald John Trump, and I'm still voting for Speaker McCarthy, and that's where the real MAGA conservatives are. That's everything that everyone needs to know about my conversation and phone call with the former president and the next president of the United States and President Donald J. Trump. Mm -hmm. So you did not want to see McCarthy ousted. You've made it clear. You've called Matt Gaetz, quote, quote, one of the most hypocritical individuals you've ever had the displeasure of meeting and working with. Some of your colleagues are reportedly preparing a motion to expel Gaetz from the Republican conference Are you going to support that? I'm seriously inclined to. I have yet to make up my mind because we have an individual like George Santos that still sits within our conference that should have been removed from our body several months ago. Um, So I would have to take a harder look at that. But, Jake, I want to make something abundantly clear uh, to everyone who's watching and you as well. The MAGA banner. Let's talk about Make America Great Again and President Donald J. Trump. The reason why I love President Trump is because he had a vision He had great policy that took care of this country and that he was a disruptor. The biggest difference between someone like me and liking President Trump is that I'm in this for all of the right reasons to benefit the American people. What Mr. Gates is doing and why he aligns himself with President Trump and uses the MAGA cloak as a banner to Mm -hmm. hide himself in Mm -hmm. for top cover as a shell is because that's the closest that he'll ever be to power. And he knows that. And that's why he's doing the upsetting things that he's doing. But let's look ahead here. The Kevin McCarthy chapter is closed. We need to look ahead to new leadership within the Republican conference and find a way forward to bring this country together. You know, we're here to build this country back up, not break it down by a few reckless individuals within our party. Let me just ask you one quick question because we're running out of time, Congressman. While the House is speakerless, action on Ukraine funding is is in limbo. Uh, The White House wants $24 billion in additional funding. You were one of four House Republicans who made a surprise visit to Ukraine a few months ago. You met with Ukrainian President Volodymyr Zelensky. After the trip, you said you supported uh, supporting Ukraine, specifically with weaponry, though not with funding. Uh, Where do you stand now as Ukraine burns through ammunition and other countries are slower to resupply? And and do you think it's important that the next speaker uh, support Ukraine one way or another? I think those are a lot of tough questions. I'm happy to answer them directly. Look, when it comes to the war in Ukraine and when it comes to continuing the war efforts and supporting them, I've asked President Biden and this administration to provide us a framework and a strategy of how they're going to win their war in Ukraine. Jake, when I was over there and when I met with President Zelensky, President Biden had met with him the day before. 
And when I sat in that room, I asked President Zelensky, what did he want? He said, I want F-16s, right? And I said, what do you want the F-16s for? He said, for cruise missiles and drones. You don't need F-16s for cruise missiles and drones. You need attackums, air to surface, that are actually going to help be kinetic on the battlefield. The reason why I'm bringing this story up, Jake, is because President Biden isn't helping the Ukrainian people, in my opinion. He hasn't sat down with them to give them a framework of how they can win their war in their own country without us spilling American blood on their soil. This is something that every American should deserve, and I so believe that you should, I mean, everyone should agree with me. Do that you want we them to get attackums? from President Biden. Do you want them to get attackums? Do attack- I want them to get attackums? I, I would be open to it if the president was, but I got to tell you something. He needs to get, have our military generals, if he's serious, to figure out a framework and a strategy of how to win the war. I don't think any American can sit here and agree that we should be writing blank checks to Ukraine in billions of dollars while mm-hmm. our southern border is a mess, our economy is in free fall, our supply chain issues are broken, and we have a labor shortage within this country. We have serious issues we have to deal with here first, but President Biden isn't taking this seriously. And I implore the media, I implore you, ask him how he's going to win his war in Ukraine, and I think you would find more conservatives okay. to be more receptive to the war and the effort. Republican Congressman Max Miller, thanks so much for your time today. Really appreciate it. With us now is Florida Democratic Thank Congressman you. Jared Moskowitz. He's on the Foreign Affairs and Oversight Committee. Uh, Congressman, you just heard me talking uh, to Republican Congressman Max Miller about the hesitations he has over Ukraine funding. Uh, And uh, as you know, Republican Jim Jordan, who Congressman Miller supports for speaker, has previously said he's against more Ukraine aid. He elaborated a bit more on that today. Take a listen. I've been clear that there are two fundamental questions that need to be answered. Uh, What's the goal? Is the goal some negotiated peace? Is the goal some get them out of eastern Ukraine? Is the goal to get them, the Russians out of Crimea, which they've had, they took during the Obama administration, they've had for now nine years. What is the goal? What is the objective? Second question. If you can tell us what the goal is, how's the money being spent? Those seem like fair questions. Can you answer either of those questions in terms of what the Biden administration policy is? No, thanks, Jake. Appreciate it. Look, no, I think those are fair questions. There's nothing wrong with asking for an accounting of how the money has been spent. You know, as far as what the goal is here, the goal is very simple. And the president has clearly articulated this. The goal is that Ukraine doesn't become property of Russia. That is the goal. The goal is, is that to prevent Russia from going to Ukraine to then Poland. That is the goal. Uh, and so and, and listen, you know, uh, Chairman Jordan knows that, but he's got a problem within his caucus because he's got a growing number, not one or 10 or 20. He has 100 members that don't want to vote for Ukraine funding. But let's be clear, we're going to have a vote on Ukraine funding because there are enough Democrats and there are enough Republicans to do what's called a discharge petition. And if you get 218 on the discharge petition, we will be voting uh, on that issue. Very quickly, you served with uh, Matt Gates for years, both in Congress and the Florida State Legislature. Have you been in touch with him lately? Yeah, I talked to Matt on the floor. And uh, what's your take on all this? And what's your take on whether or not he's afraid of being kicked out of the Republican co- conference, as you just heard uh, Congressman Miller talking about? Well, look, you know, um, Max is a friend. Uh, I, I heard his perspective. That's an internal Republican matter, right? That's the Republican conference. They got to make that decision whether or not they want to remove a member who removed their speaker. So I, I'm not going to weigh into their internal discussions because, quite frankly, I don't know what's happening in their caucus because I'm not invited uh, to, to their meetings. But this was all 
predictable, uh, Jake. Yep. When they made this deal with Matt Gates, and every single solitary Republican voted for the rule change, every single solitary Democrat voted against the rule change. That was to give one member the ability to make this motion. Every Democrat voted against that. Every Republican voted for it. They gave Matt the weapon. They built it for him, gave it to him for Matt eventually to use this. And everything that happened was well known before then. Matt held up the speaker's vote for 15 rounds. They thought he was never going to use this. So this was inevitable. This is something that was talked about. It was whispered about. When is Matt going to do this? When, what, is he going to be able to find the votes? Uh, and look, no one should be celebrating. This is a you know, a, a terrible moment uh, in the history of the, uh, of the U.S. House of Representatives uh, and our institutions are in peril. Yeah. But it's not because of Democrats. It's because Republicans gave their MAGA wing, the Donald Trump wing of the House of Representatives, this tool. It'll be interesting uh, what Democrats do uh, in terms of what you whether or not you exact concessions from Republicans who want to get rid of that motion uh, to vacate. Democratic Representative Jared Moskowitz of Florida, good to see you. Thanks so much. One influential Democrat says there needs to be a backlash on the Republicans who helped push McCarthy out of office as Speaker. We're going to hear more from her next. Continuing with, uh, <clears throat> pardon me, continuing with our politics lead, former Senator, Secretary of State, and Democratic presidential candidate Hillary Clinton is weighing in about the historic dysfunction on Capitol Hill among Republicans. She sat down with CNN's Christiane Amanpour, who joins us now. Uh, So Clinton is calling for backlash against the eight House rebels who got rid of Speaker McCarthy? Well, she's basically saying and admitting that American democracy is in deep trouble and this kind of small group of extremists, as she calls them and many other call them, um, is holding the rest of the party and, in fact, Congress hostage. And I asked her specifically about Speaker McCarthy and what happened and whether, in fact, Democrats should have helped keep, quote unquote, the devil they know instead of the devil they don't know. And this is what she said. So should the Democrats have saved him, so to speak? Should they have voted to keep him in? You know, that was a very um, uh, tough call for the Democratic caucus. But the problem was for them, as I understand it, he was totally untrustworthy by any measure. Uh, He uh, immediately after they did help him keep the government open, as you know, uh, began to blame them for all kinds of, you know, extraneous matters. And at some point, a leader has lost all credibility uh, in dealing with the opposition, where you want to have an open line of communication, you want to be able to trust his word, um, is going to, uh, you know, ask for their help and not get it. Mm -hmm. It's said that the main contenders for his position are Jim Jordan, who you know very well from Benghazi. I don't know him well. I watched him and, and, uh, you know, stared at him for 11 hours while he made stuff up about me. So I don't know him, but I've seen him in action. So what will it mean if he gets the speakership? Well, I mean, he is one of the principal uh, ringleaders of the circus that's been created in the Republican Party for the last several years. Um, I, I have no inside knowledge about what the Republicans will do, who they will end up voting for. But when do they put the country first? They do not represent a majority of even the Republican Party. Uh, when you look at the extremists in the House, they certainly don't represent a majority of the country. And, you know, somebody has to stand up and say enough. You know, we could have disagreements. I'm all for that. I was in the Senate for eight years. I worked with a lot of Republicans and, you know, opposed them when uh, I didn't agree. 
But at some point, there needs to be a backlash against the control that this small group of extremists have. And I don't know uh, who will lead that, but uh, let's hope uh, whoever becomes the new speaker will. And honestly, she went on in blistering form. She talked about the leader of these extremists, who clearly is Donald Trump. And as you've been reporting, he may be considering a trip to Capitol Hill amidst the new uh, speaker's selection. And she said this has to be defeated. They have to be defeated at an election. And this cult is bad for the country and, again, has to be defeated. She also talked very strongly about Ukraine and, of course, that breaking news with the massacre at the, at the no, coffee shop. Horrendous. And, and supported President Biden making a strong speech, as apparently is planned for sometime soon. And where can people see uh, the rest of the interview? So we're going to have a little bit more coming out this weekend, also tomorrow on uh, CNN This Morning. And then the long interview will be on my program uh, on Monday. Okay, yeah. uh, great stuff. Christiane Amapour, thanks so much. Appreciate it. Coming up next, who pays if a SWAT team, law enforcement, inflicts severe damage on your property and you weren't even involved in any crime, even remotely? Well, you might find the answer frustrating. Stay tuned. In our national lead, what is the responsibility of the government when police, in the course of doing their jobs, accidentally destroy the property of innocent bystanders? Well, it may surprise you the lengths to which the governments of counties and municipalities tell those innocent civilians, tough break, you're on your own. When I saw the shop, the first feeling I had, I said to myself, why did this guy shoot me? It took a lifetime for Carlos Pena to realize his American dream and build his business, a print shop. It took mere hours for an L.A. SWAT team to destroy it, through no fault of Pena's. Last August, a fugitive violently forced his way into the shop and threw Pena out the door. Out of thousands of businesses in North Hollywood, it, you know, this guy picked mine. The fugitive barricaded himself inside. During an hours-long standoff, a SWAT team fired more than 30 rounds of tear gas, Pena says. It felt like a war in there. I thought there were gunshots. The fugitive got away leaving behind a disaster caused by the cops with serious damage to all Pena's equipment and the building. It even reeked of tear gas. The second I went inside the shop, I was going to pass out. Pena's inventory ruined. His equipment unusable. All the work of my life had gone down the drain for one guy. Pena's insurance policy, like most people's, did not cover acts of the government, leaving Pena on the hook for the more than $60,000 in damage and the tens of thousands in lost business. The Los Angeles city government would not reimburse Pena for the destruction police caused, so he sued. I don't mean that they were doing something wrong, but in the process, they are making me pay for what they do. The takings clause in the Fifth Amendment to the U.S. Constitution says that private property shall not be taken for public use without just compensation. Now, some federal courts have ruled that government actions taken under, quote, police powers are not subject to the takings clause. But there have been multiple lawsuits, such as Pena's. I can't really explain the devastation that a person feels, and I guess it's because of the injustice. Vicki Baker also sued over a police raid. A Texas SWAT team heavily damaged her McKinney home during a fugitive barricade situation in 2020. 
Everything was thrown out. I mean, linens, uh, dishes, you name it, everything went. There were so many wonderful things that I had, family history, first edition books. It just, it all got thrown away. And of course, they put no money value on any of that. Baker says her dog Bandit, a chihuahua, was blinded and lost his hearing because of the raid. She says Bandit had so much pain and trauma, he eventually had to be put down. Bandit uh, was probably the, the worst piece that we had to lose. A federal judge awarded Baker about $60,000 to cover the damage, but the city of McKinney, Texas, is appealing. The city says they initially offered Baker $55,000 and she declined. I will tell you this, that if we don't win, this is going to go all the way to the Supreme Court. I, this cannot continue to happen to individuals. CNN reached out to the Los Angeles mayor's office. We have not heard back. We were inspired to do this story by a piece we read in Reason magazine. Stunning details out of Wisconsin. Officials say a man showed up with a handgun and demanded to see the governor. Then another shocker, even after that man's arrest. The assignment with me, Audie Cornish. So there have been arrests, suspensions, disciplinary hearings. They're shutting down graduation events. At this moment, the part of the protests that are admirable are young people calling attention to atrocities. Michael Roth is the president of Wesleyan University. I would like to make a space for them to do that, as long as that space doesn't prevent other people from pursuing their education. Listen to The Assignment with me, Audie Cornish, on your favorite podcast app. Welcome to The Lead. I'm Jake Tapper. This hour, the border crisis, front and center, and not just at the border. It's now a massive issue issue in cities across the United States. In New York City, around 600 migrants are showing up every single day. In Chicago, plans to bring in military-grade tents as migrants crowd city sidewalks. Democratic leaders in both of these big cities are going to the border themselves, just as the Biden White House announces a plan to build more border barriers. And Police say a man showed up at Wisconsin's state capitol with a gun looking for the governor. What he did after his arrest is just as shocking. But first, Donald Trump is now weighing a trip to Capitol Hill, this time without the violent mob, though he is injecting himself into what he maybe knows best, chaos. This one is stirred up by Republicans who have brought the House to a standstill as they mull over who should be their next speaker after they got rid of the last one. Let's get right to CNN's Manu Raju live on Capitol Hill. And Manu, longtime Republican lawmakers Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan seem to be the front runners right now, but they're taking quite different approaches to this race. Yeah, Jordan has been a bit more visible in this race. He has done some media appearances. Scalise has been very quiet. He's been moving mostly behind the scenes, although this is mostly a behind-the-scenes effort that both men are waging, trying to go member by member to lock down the support, talking to various factions, various groups within the larger House Republican Conference and making the pitch about why they believe they can unite this badly divided conference. As there are many questions that members have about their policies, the decisions they're going to make, how to avoid a government shutdown, and how to avoid what happened on the House floor just two days ago when Kevin McCarthy speaker ever hosted by his own colleagues on a floor vote. All these questions uh, come as these these two men are trying to essentially get 
a majority of the 221 House Republicans to vote for them in a secret ballot election next week. That will be the nominating contest. After they are nominated by their conference, then they go to the House floor for a full vote. And that's when things will get tricky, Jake, because right now the House is 433 members with two vacancies. That means they could only afford to lose four Republican votes on the House floor. And if there are more than four, we can see what happened to Kevin McCarthy happened to either of these candidates, which is why these discussions right now are so critical to lock down the support and make some promises to these members. Otherwise, if these members don't like what they're hearing, then they may undercut that bid for the speakership, Jake. And Mano, you're talking to Republicans who say that the threshold to bring a, a vote to kick out the speaker, the motion to vacate or MTV, that, that should be much, much higher than just one person. How much of a factor is that going to play uh, in their votes? This is a huge factor, Jake. A number of these more moderate members, a number of these members who are close to Kevin McCarthy, simply do not want to see the Matt Gaetzes of the world use this again for another speaker, are calling on the, the changes to the House rules to make it a majority of the House Republican conference who could actually call for such a vote, ousting the speaker. But, Jake, also we are hearing from some of those hard-right members who say that they are willing to get rid of the so-called motion to vacate if Jim Jordan is their, pre- their preference if he becomes elected speaker, but it may be different if Steve Scalise gets it. He could potentially be in the same situation unless there's agreement among the conference to change the rules here, but a big issue for a lot of these members as they weigh their vote. All right, CNN's Manu Raju, thanks so much. Joining us now to discuss Republican California Congressman David Valadeo. He was one of the 10 Republicans who voted to impeach then-President Trump over the January 6th insurrection. Congressman, so your district borders that of Congressman McCarthy, the former speaker, your friends. McCarthy says he's not going to run for speaker again, so you're going to have to make a decision. Uh, Have you decided if you are Team Scalise or Team Jordan? No, I have not. Uh, I think we've got a few great candidates running. Uh, Obviously, I'm going to try to take as much time on this as possible. Uh, But obviously, uh, us not being in D.C. has not changed the amount of communication. I mean, the amount of phone calls going on right now, the amount of Zoom meetings that we're having amongst our groups. I mean, there's just a lot going on. Politico reports that McCarthy and Scalise have been at odds with each other for years. And during McCarthy's January bid for speaker, which went to 15 ballots, quote, McCarthy allies privately vented that Scalise wasn't doing enough to help McCarthy. If it's if if that's true and McCarthy starts helping Jordan out, could you be convinced to be Team Jordan uh, because of your friendship with McCarthy? You know, I've always made my decisions based off of what I thought was best. Uh, obviously, uh, Kevin has been a, a really strong ally, and I don't think I'd be in Congress without him. Uh, but I have to always do what I think is best for me in the district that I'm elected to represent. I mean, yes, we border, but our districts are very, very different in the way that their uh, uh, politics play out. And uh, I got to always do what I have to do. So a lot of your colleagues, as I don't need to tell you, are very, very frustrated uh, with not just the eight members of Congress, who uh, Republicans who voted uh, against uh, Speaker McCarthy, but also just the the degree of deference that McCarthy gave the more extremist elements of your party. Take a listen to your fellow Republican Congressman Dusty Johnson on CNN earlier today. We don't change the foundational problems within our conference. It's just going to be the same stupid clown car with a different driver. I don't think the pyromaniacs uh, are going to be satisfied after they've burned down one house. I think they're going to have an itching to go burn down a couple more. 
Do you agree that there are, quote, foundational problems, the clown car, the pyromaniacs, whatever you want to call them? And, and if so, is a week enough time to solve them? I don't know if a week's long enough, but uh, the issue is we don't have a whole week to waste. Uh, we've got to get back to work. I mean, we were given a 45-day window to get the government funded. We've got a farm bill. We've got FAA reauthorization. We've got National Defense Authorization Act. We've got a lot of really important topics that the American people need us to solve, so we need to get this uh, as Dusty said, clown car going again as quickly as possible. So your, your colleague from Florida, who's one of the eight, Matt Gates, says he, he is open to raising the threshold to kick out a speaker if, in, if Republicans are willing to uh, negotiate on some of the anti-corruption reforms laid out by one of your other fellow Californians, Democrat Rokana. And this includes a ban on congressional stock trading, a 12-year term limit for members of Congress, a ban on political donations from lobbyists or PACs. Um, seriously, I mean, might you be open to some of those? I, I don't think a ban on congressional stock trading or, or uh, a ban on political donations from lobbyists or PACs sounds so crazy. No, and none of those ideas sound that crazy. But the reality is, is uh, there's always a way for people to have their crazy way of making their decisions to make their decisions. And, uh, and sadly, a lot of these guys are making decisions because they like to see their uh, faces on uh, on the TV like I am right now. And sometimes they do it because of uh, online political fundraising. I mean, we saw that even with the vote this weekend uh, with, or earlier this week with McCarthy. And we had people as they were speaking on the floor sending out fundraising texts. And then even some of my Democrat colleagues who were unhappy with the outcome and claimed to be unhappy uh, were sending out their own fundraising things uh, on the same topic. And uh, I mean, I, I think the only thing that's ever going to solve Washington is the American people just paying a little more attention to what's going on and being a little more cautious of what they vote, uh, who they vote into office, uh, because bad people can make bad decisions for whatever whatever reason they want. And uh, the fundamental changes, I mean, obviously we could change the rules, we could change the fundraising, we could change a lot of things. But someone who wants to do bad things is always going to find a way to do it. And I think uh, I think we've learned that with a lot of the, uh, the things we're doing with today. Bad people, bad things, like what? Like who? Well, I mean, you just had a story on a minute ago talking about some of the crime situations we've got going on around the country. I, I just had mm -hmm. a friend's father-in-law murdered in a, in a store uh, a couple of nights ago here in my hometown, and it was a bad person that did something. And these people are going to find ways to do it. This guy uh, was standing at a, a counter, literally looking at a birthday card for a friend, and some random person walked up to him and stabbed him for no good reason. Yeah. Why was that person there? He didn't have a gun. He still murdered someone, an 80-year-old veteran. It's a sad situation. These are bad people. And so the decisions that are being made, especially in Washington, you've got people making decisions, I think, for the wrong reason. I mean, what we saw with Matt Gates and the Democrat colleagues love sending out their fundraising emails saying that, hey, this is a huge problem. These people are crazy. Well, every single one of them voted with them. So don't call them crazy if you're voting with them. It was only eight of them. And there's 210 Republicans that voted the other way. We knew this was a bad strategy. We knew going in. And a lot of us were furious that we were getting sent home, too. But there was a lot of anger in that room. And I think what Garrett Graves said is absolutely right. There was a very good chance that uh, there was going to be some fists thrown because people were so angry with the situation. And now we're losing a week of our time when we should be talking about funding the government. We shouldn't be holding the government hostage. People at home who are saying, oh, just shut down the government. I mean, so you want us to hold our military pay so that uh, people are still having to show up to their bases, to their facilities and continue to do their job, but not get a paycheck? That's a horrible strategy. Our strategy should be exactly what some of my colleagues that I disagree with on is 
passing those appropriations bills, getting those to the Senate, negotiating, and finding a way to compromise with the Democrat Senate and a Democrat president get those signed into law. Now, these side games, and as Dusty called it a clown car, it's a sad situation, but the reality is we need to get back to work as quickly as possible. Do you uh, think Donald Trump should come up to Capitol Hill as, as he's talking about doing? No, I don't know if that's going to help the situation much right now. Um, I think we've got a, a great bench of candidates out there. Uh, I know a lot of them really well personally, and some of them get to know a little bit better now. Uh, but uh, I think we've got enough candidates in the conference uh, to get to find someone who can lead us and uh, work with uh, the col- our colleagues and, and get something done. I know there are a lot of moderate Republicans that don't want Jim Jordan running the, as the speaker. I mean, I, everybody keeps praising both of them, but, but I, I mean... Jim Jordan, uh, I mean, Jim Jordan voted against the CR on Friday. He voted against, he voted in favor of shutting down the government. So you really think that he's the broad-based appeal for, for the Republican uh, conference? No, that's a great question. Yeah, there was some frustration there. But even in his speech defending McCarthy uh, on the floor the other day, he spoke about how that was literally the only option we had left. And I saw a few members uh, in conference that morning when it was being talked about just the Republicans who got up and spoke in support of that resolution and ended up voting against it. And they make their decisions. And, and as a person that's taken some tough votes in my career and understands fully what, uh, what it's like to do what you believe is right, no matter what, um, sometimes it sucks to see it. Uh, but I, I'm sure if we look back into Scalise's record, or if I'm sure if we look back into Kevin Hearn's record or whoever else, even Kevin McCarthy's record, even my own, you're going to find something that we can disagree with. My goal is to look forward and try to find the best candidate to get us out of this mess and get us governing again. All right. Republican from California, Congressman David Dalladeo, thank you so much. Appreciate it, sir. Coming up next, that disturbing arrest in Wisconsin after a man allegedly showed up to the state capitol with a gun, not once, but twice in one day. Also ahead, Donald Trump's newest political target, Nikki Haley. And he made his plans pretty public knowledge. Stay with us. In our national lead, a terrifying story out of the Wisconsin Capitol building where a man allegedly brought a gun and asked to see the state's governor only to be arrested post-bail and then show back up with a rifle. CNN's Whitney Wilde joins us live. Whitney, walk us through how all of this unfolded. So here's what happened, Jake. This man went to the Madison Capitol at 2 o'clock Wednesday. He didn't have a shirt on. He had a gun in a holster, and he had a dog on a leash. And he told security there he wanted to talk to the governor. They took him into custody because it is illegal to have a firearm inside the Wisconsin State Capitol. So he went to jail. He was processed. He posted bail. Seven hours later, he showed back up at the Madison Capitol, this time with an AK-47-style rifle, again demanding to speak with the governor. Uh, Police have not expanded on his comments. They have not said whether or not they were threatening. They've said only that he wanted to speak with the governor. Uh, They took him back into custody, again without incident. He consented to a voluntary search of his backpack, which showed that he had a collapsible, uh, basically a collapsible police baton in his backpack and Capitol Police considered that a weapon and said that he does not have a concealed carry permit for that weapon. So again, they took him back into custody. Uh, He was at least charged with that. The latest information we have, Jake, is that he was uh, at least they were going to try to get him to undergo a psychiatric evaluation. Uh, Many more questions here to learn, Jake, but uh, certainly the diligent police at the Madison Capitol 
protecting the governor uh, from what could have been uh, a much scarier uh, and much more dangerous incident. Tony Evers, the governor of Wisconsin, saying just that, saying this is not something you ever want to see, but he's very grateful for the diligent work of the Capitol Police in Madison. Reporters asked him today whether or not the security posture at the Madison Capitol is going to change, and the governor said that is something he believes that they are certainly looking into, Jake. Showing up the first time wasn't enough of a red flag, apparently, for the psychiatric exam. Well, Whitney Wilde, thanks so much. Appreciate it. And our law and justice lead new moment, new movement in the Fulton County election subversion case in Georgia involving former President Trump and 18 other co-defendants. Attorneys for former Trump campaign lawyer, lawyer Sidney Powell in court today arguing several motions, including to dismiss her case. Joining us now is CNN Sarah Murray. Sarah, what came out of today's hearing? Well, the long and short of it is Sidney Powell and Kenneth Chesbro, this other pro-Trump attorney, are still on track to go to trial in this case in just a couple of weeks. Later on this month, Sidney Powell's attorney, you know, sort of presented an early preview of what his defense is going to be as he was trying to get the charges against her dismissed. The judge didn't exactly rule, but he very strongly signaled that he was not going to buy Powell's motion to dismiss, said she didn't really meet the procedural bar here in terms of alleging, you know, some kind of misconduct or whatnot when it came to bringing the indictment. So it's full speed ahead for trial for these. Did you hear when Parlatori was on the other day to with with represents Bernie Carrick and said he has testimony to share that would uh, help with that? Yeah, I think that it's going to be interesting to see the wrangling uh, with the various witnesses. We're starting to see some of that. I mean, they mentioned in court today that the prosecution had just offered up a a preliminary list of 174 (laughs) potential witnesses who may come up uh, at trial. And we saw some court filings earlier today with the judge overseeing this case, essentially approving the DA's efforts to seek testimony for a handful of out-of-state like witnesses. Boris Epstein. Boris Epstein is one of the one of the people on the list. Uh, Lawrence Tabus, who is the Pennsylvania GOP chair, who is supposed to serve as a fake elector in Pennsylvania, but ultimately didn't do so. Again, this is the kind of wrangling we're going to see ahead of trial, trying yeah. to get these witnesses to come in from out of state, trying to force people to testify who clearly don't want to testify. Yeah, I don't know if they watched the lead uh, in uh, Fannie Willis's office, but uh, clearly Parlatori was, you know, trying to signal, call me, you know, mm-hmm. for, for something with, uh, with Bernie Carrick. Um, anyway, Sarah Murray, thanks so much. Really appreciate it. Uh, when Donald Trump said he would build that wall, Joe Biden was saying this as a candidate. There will not be another foot of wall constructed on my administration. No longer true. Stay with us. Back with our world lead and a stunning breaking news story about what Donald Trump did with potentially sensitive information, allegedly. ABC News just reported that months after leaving the White House, the former president allegedly discussed details about U.S. nuclear submarines with somebody who was a member of his Mar-a-Lago club who did not have security clearances. That person was reportedly an Australian billionaire who shared the information with dozens of other people, including foreign officials and journalists. ABC News reports all of this information was reported to special counsel Jack Smith, who is, of course, investigating Trump's handling and alleged mishandling of classified records. We are not yet aware of any response from Trump or the Australian businessman to ABC News, but let us discuss. We have with us former Congresswoman Barbara Comstock, who is insisting that I call her Barbara. Um, what's your response to this story? Well, I'm I'm confident it's true, and <laughs> things continue to amaze us. Not not amaze us with Donald Trump, uh, but um, you know I think Jack Smith is doing a very thorough and great job, and shows why that uh, 
that case is going to be, I, I think, a, a real problem for Donald Trump and why this uh, election is going to be very much in play. So for those who think it's a great idea for him to come up to uh, Congress next week and it all get uh, in the mix here, that's a really bad idea. Yeah, and Things we, it, can only get worse up there. Things can always get, well, you heard uh, Congressman uh, Valadeo, Republican from California, say that he does not want Donald Trump to go up to Capitol Hill. Congressman Max Miller, a former aide to Donald Trump in the White House, excited to have Donald Trump to come up on Capitol Hill. Yeah, I think it depends on where you fall in the MAGA extremism of the Republican caucus right now. Donald Trump is still the front leader of the Republican uh, primary. And, you know, some folks still love him. Some folks still want to give him the the leash to say that the election results of 2020 weren't valid. Some folks would have listened to him depending on what happened this week with the speaker vote. So people really are taking their clues from Donald Trump. I think it could cause more chaos for Jim Jordan and Scalise in their speaker run because he could come up and say, make me speaker. Not that I think Donald Trump wants to work that hard, really, but um, it would be a disaster. And this finding that he has given more sensitive information to someone without classified uh, clearance. clearance. Yeah. And who needs not know secrets about our national security is yet again an example of why he doesn't need to go to Capitol Hill and why he never needs to return to the White House. Why he's unfit. And, and, and Audie, this, this phrase, shocking but not surprising, is one that we have constantly been using in the Trump administration. It is shocking that he would do this and yet completely in character. It's also easy to be desensitized by it. We're hearing this almost out of context, right? If, if you're the average person watching him in any given courtroom at any given time, is this case tied to this one? Which Jack Smith one is this? And I think it'll be interesting over the next couple of months if these things uh, start to kind of coalesce for people in their minds, that they have a distinct understanding of what it means to violate the law, right? And you'll be hearing from judges more. You'll be hearing actual courtroom discussion more. And I think that will be more helpful because right now it's a blitz of information and not in a good way. Let's talk about uh, the big news uh, at the border. Um, Ashley, uh, as a candidate, Joe Biden promised no more spending on the border wall or border barriers. Um, the money in Texas uh, it was already approved. It had to be spent. Um, but it seems as though the DHS secretary, uh, Mayorkas, acknowledged uh, in his statement that to a degree, at least, Donald Trump was right that there do need to be some barriers to uh, at least alleviate the migrant crisis to, to keep people out. I mean, countries are allowed to have borders. Yeah, I think Joe Biden's saying he doesn't think the border wall works. I, I think we need other solutions to stop the influx of migrants coming to the United States. We need to have comprehensive immigration reform. This is not a problem that, you know, just started happening with Joe Biden's campaign promise in 2020. No, of course not. It, yeah. It's been going on for decades, and it goes, it's it's almost cyclical, because if you can't get order on Congress, in, on Capitol Hill, to actually legislate and pass comprehensive reform, then we're going to, whoever it is, Donald Trump, that was his leading phrase, let's build the wall, or Joe Biden using the money, we're kind of stuck. Yeah. Uh, and uh, in total, more than 17,000 migrants have come to Chicago since August 2022 in more than 340 buses. And the Democratic mayor says they're expecting up to 20 buses a day, but they're never sure. Take a listen. They're sending buses in the middle of the night. And so that number continues to change throughout the day. I have to say, uh, whatever people thought about the they were called stunts uh, by DeSantis of Florida and Abbott of Texas, 
Um, it has had the effect of getting Democrats, forcing Democrats to have skin in the game and realize that uh, this crisis is having a, a real effect on how places that are, have this influx, their ability to, to do anything about it. It is a humanitarian crisis in addition to being all sorts of other kinds of crisis. Well, and politically, this is a good move for Joe Biden and to get a bipartisan solution here. And right now you have sort of this false situation where you have some Republicans saying, we can't do anything about Ukraine because we have a border crisis. This has the makings of, and this is what Lindsey Graham has been talking about, and the Senate Republicans have been saying, let's fix the border and do more border money in exchange for more Ukraine money. So I think this is an ideal situation where you can take a lot of that HR2 and what Henry Cuellar was talking about earlier today on the show, saying there's a lot of HR2, that, that you know border bill that Republicans like. Let's take pieces of that because there's a lot of technology in there, a lot of things that Republicans like, and then let's get the Ukraine money that we know we need. There's a deal to be had there. And Joe Biden can, while Republicans are trying to burn down the House, he can be working with Henry Cuellar and with Senate Republicans and with reasonable Republicans in the House and say, let's make a deal. And he can be the art of the deal here while Donald Trump is dealing with his legal problems. And a little uh, context for what you said. Uh, Yes, it was a political stunt. But one thing we learned from the reporting here at CNN, Rosa Flores is uh, amazing, is Information does get back down through the chain when it comes to the sort of migrant community. So if you're getting a free bus ticket to New York or Chicago (laughs) or whatever, at a certain point, you are now just telling people back home when you get here, they send you to To Chicago or Los Angeles. Yeah. So you are, in fact, also um, reinforcing and creating further problems. Further incentive, yeah. And further incentive. And that's something that isn't talked about very much. And you're right, chaos is a ladder, and it's probably helpful for Democrats to talk about what is often politically, you know, a thankless issue with no real constituency to support it, of actually trying to address something in a humane way, meaning beyond just cutting off access. Yeah, no, excellent points. You mentioned a second ago um, burning down the House, a reference to what just happened in the House of Representatives. And in light of that, I want to bring you some breaking news that I just was told in my earpiece. Uh, Donald Trump just told uh, Fox Digital that he would accept the job of House Speaker for a short period of time uh, while House Republicans decide on a permanent replacement. Uh, Mr. Trump said he would be willing to serve for up to 90 days as a unifier um, I hesitate to even bring you this news because it seems so preposterous, and yet... I assume some lawyer tried to find out if you could uh, pardon yourself, and maybe no, there's right, some right. Well, there actually, to take no. that job. I mean, well, unfortunately, he doesn't know the House rules, which say if you're indicted, you cannot be in, in uh, House leadership. That has been a Republican rule uh, that apparently neither he nor some of the Republicans know. Remember back when uh, Tom DeLay was indicted, he stepped aside from Republican leadership. Is that right? That's a rule that's in place. It's been in place for years. I mean, you know, you have Senator Menendez over in the Senate who stepped aside from his leadership role. Uh, Democrats apparently have the same rule. I do not think that, well, who knows, that Republicans can change that rule. You don't think that they would Uh, take away that rule? Well, if if Republicans want to lose the House, listen, you know, I am not a fan, obviously, of Donald Trump will not be voting for him. But if they're going to be doing this, uh, they really will be burning down the House. This is a disaster. Yeah. Yeah. An absolute disaster. That's all.
Yeah. Just keep burning down the house. Unacceptable. Just four, just four words. This, this, is, this is, a, is a disaster. For them or you America. Just, it's, it's for the country. Okay. For it America. is a disaster for the country. For I mean, everyone. It is. For the Constitution, for the country. And Democrats. Yeah, for everybody. A disaster. That is, I was going to say, we yeah. can't call everything a disaster. That would be no, a no, disaster. No, no. Something that is politically embarrassing and probably kicks, you know, Quixotic is not necessarily a disaster for all of us. And that's what we're looking at. Thank here. you one and all for being here. And need I remind you, it is Audie Cornish Thursday. Her, her podcast uh, drops today. So please, everybody listen to it. Uh, new data today confirmed an alarming trend, one that every single person on the planet needs to know about. Stay tuned. Our Earth Matters lead now. September saw numerous extreme weather events from the devastating and deadly flooding in Libya to wildfires that continue to burn in Canada to an historic downpour flooding parts of New York City. And now new data shows last month was also the hottest September on record. And one climate scientist is calling it absolutely gobsmackingly bananas. This is an alarming trend that has continued now for four consecutive months, meaning 2023 is now on track to becoming the hottest year ever in recorded history. CNN chief climate correspondent Bill Weir joins me. Bill, what what factors are driving this extreme heat? Well, it's not just a little, this new record. It's by a lot. Take a look at this bar graph from Copernicus. This is the European Space Weather Agency. This is uh, September's going back to 1940. And for most of uh, those generations, it was below average. See what happens there? Around 2000, it starts going up. And then we are that giant red line on the right side. And scientists are saying that is gobsmackingly uh, bananas right now. It's a combination of fossil fuel pollution over 150 years and El Nino just beginning in the Pacific, both the natural and uh, the unnatural causes of this giant crisis. But there's amazing good news as well uh, from the International Energy Agency. Their new report now takes stock of just how fast the world is adopting to clean energy. Solar, uh, heat pumps, uh, battery storage, these sorts of things have them predicting now that humanity will hold the the warming at about 2.4 degrees warming by 2100. There's still a chance for 1.5. That is considerably good news, considering just uh, 10 years ago, we were talking about, you know, apocalyptic temperatures by 2100. But this shows that we can bend the curve if humanity cares. The technology is there, or if the humanity finds the will to do this politically. Uh, And so we're talking in much less dire terms. How is the record heat impacting people who work outside? Well, it's interesting. Uh, The University of Exeter just did a study on a high-tech Chinese factory workers who work inside in air conditioning. And for every degree, the temperature goes up by one Celsius. Productivity goes down by almost one percent because overnight temperatures affect sleep, which affects productivity. So just imagine road crews, as you see there, uh, construction crews in Phoenix are starting at four in the morning. Uh, farm workers in, from Texas and Florida are having a fight for water breaks uh, with local politicians. Uh, adaptation it means survival in this new era that we're living in. Uh, and both earth care is self-care in a lot of ways, Jake. All right, Bill Weir, thanks so much. Uh, sticking with this issue, let's talk now to one of the most influential climate scientists on the planet, Michael Mann. His latest book is Our Fragile Moment, How Lessons from the Earth's Past Can Help Us Survive the Climate Crisis. Uh, congratulations on the book, Michael. Uh, despite this year being on track to be the hottest ever recorded, 
You take, as Bill just did, a cautiously optimistic tone in your book. You write, quote, the greatest threat is which is frankly untenable, given the impacts that we can all see playing out in real time, but rather doomism, the notion that it's too late to act, unquote. So what lessons from the past give you hope that we can actually meet this moment? Yeah, thanks. And it, it was a great uh, sort of summary that Bill provided there. And he, he emphasized sort of this duality of urgency and agency. The urgency is obvious. It's clear. We're all feeling increasingly dire consequences of fossil fuel burning and the warming planet that that's causing. But as Bill alluded to, um, we have agency as well. We can reduce our carbon emissions enough to avoid crossing into truly catastrophic territory. And when we look to the past, we can see that you know, Earth does have a certain amount of resilience. The Earth system, Earth climate has a certain amount of resilience within it. And, and that's a helpful thing. And we see that in the past. The climate hasn't spun out of control. It's warmed up substantially when there's been a massive input of carbon dioxide. And that happened 55 million years ago, for example. That was a natural input of carbon dioxide. The planet warmed nearly nine degrees Fahrenheit, uh, but it took tens of thousands of years. That's rapid on a geological time frame. We're warming the planet a hundred times faster. And that's really the problem. It isn't how warm it is or how high CO2 levels are. They've been higher. The planet's been warmer. It's the rate at which we are warming the planet, but we can stop it. If we stop polluting the atmosphere with carbon pollution, the warming of the planet stops and the impacts that we're seeing stop getting worse. We'll still have to contend with those impacts that are baked in, but we can prevent it from getting worse. And I think in this message that you and Bill are, are conveying today is so important because there's so many young people out there who, who have this apocalyptic view, uh, and it's so it's such a it's such a pessimistic view, um, and it can really cause almost nihilism. And it's really important to convey to them: no, 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 we we can make a difference. We can get a hold of this. Yeah, that's absolutely right. And and again, you know, when we look to the past, uh, what we find is that those. You know, extinction events in the past were caused not by runaway warming. There's some people today who think that we've triggered runaway warming, uh, a release of methane that we can't stop, and all life will be extinct in 10 years no matter what we do. That's not true. That's not happening. And it isn't what happened in these past events. What happened in these past events was that there was carbon dioxide in the past produced by volcanic outgassing, intense periods of volcanism. We are putting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere today through fossil fuel burning. And if we stop fossil fuel burning, we stop that which threatens us, that which does threaten us and, and other living things with dire consequences yeah. if we don't rein it in. This is a point I really want to get to before, before I, I have to say goodbye, which is you say that one of the biggest obstacles to action is the sustained disinformation campaign from the fossil fuel lobby, but also, you write, quote, equally culpable are its abettors in the conservative media, and none are more implicated than Rupert Murdoch. Um, quickly, do you see any evidence that the campaign to discredit climate science is lessening at all? You know, it, it's not lessening. What we're seeing is a shift um, away from outright denial. We see less denial because we're all seeing the impacts. We're all seeing the consequences. It's very difficult for polluters and, and those 
promoting their agenda to deny it's happening. So they've turned to other tactics, delay, deflection. And one of them, ironically, is doom mongering. If they can convince us it's too late to do anything about the problem, it potentially leads us down that same path of disengagement. So it once again comes down to urgency. We see the urgency. We have a crisis on our hands and agency. We can do something about this. We need action. We need to vote for politicians who will support climate action rather than politicians who will act as rubber stamps for polluters. The book again is Our Fragile Moment. The author is Michael Mann. Good to see you, sir. Thanks so much for joining us. Thank you, Jake. Back in court, up next, the new fight for the convicted murderer who was the subject of the Serial podcast. Adnan Syed, whose murder conviction became famous or infamous through the hit podcast Serial, is back in court fighting to stay out of prison. Syed spent more than two decades in prison for the 1999 killing of his high school ex-girlfriend, Hyman Lee. Syed was freed last year after his conviction was overturned, but an appeals court reinstated his sentence in March after finding Hyman Lee's brother had had his rights violated as a victim's representative. CNN's Gene Casares is here. So, Gene, what happened in court today? It was fascinating. Uh, first of all, there was all of the uh, major issues were addressed today, one being the family's representative, Young Lee's uh, representative, should he have had the right, the time to be able to fly from California to Maryland to physically be in the courtroom? Uh, should have be, he been able to be heard? Could he have spoken in the courtroom? Should he have known what the exculpatory evidence was that was vacating the conviction? He wasn't told of that. And of course, the attorneys representing the victim's family said, yes, he should have. But the other side, uh, Adan Saeed said, no, this is moot. He, he watched it by Zoom. There, he didn't have to physically be in the courtroom. There was no right at all for him to be heard in that courtroom. But then there was a can of worms opened up in that courtroom today because the attorney for Young Lee's family said, Your Honor, there was a, a hearing that was in the judge's sh- chamber very close in time to when uh, this all happened. And the prosecution, the defense, the judge was there. No court reporter. Nothing was written down. The prosecution, we understand, said we have exculpatory evidence. We want to vacate the, the conviction. It was not disclosed at that time what it was and it was all very quick. The justices took note of that because one even said it appears as though there was a lot of stuff that had been discussed even before that, that plain clothes would be, uh, civilian clothes would be ready for him. I want you to listen to the Maryland Supreme Court Justice Shirley Watts take note of this revelation. So the concern is that this was a hearing that was more than just a disclosure of Brady material, that it was an in-camera hearing where significant decisions were made that should have been made on the record in the hearing and that Mr. Lee, the victim's representative, didn't have an opportunity to participate meaningfully because decisions were made in camera. Now, this hearing, Jake, in the judge's chamber, it was not an issue to really be looked at today, but if it coincides with the victim's right to have notice of what that evidence was, what was said in that hearing, notice of that there was going to be a hearing because he didn't even know anything about it, the victim's representative. Then suddenly this hearing could be front and center in this decision. Briefly, could Syed actually go back to prison? 
Well, the conviction was reinstated. It appears as though to me that before that, the judge would have a hearing involving vacating the conviction uh, before that. We'll see. All right, Gene Casares, thanks so much. We continue to look at how gun violence is affecting American children. Today, the New York Times reports that the rate of firearm fatalities among children under 18 increased by 87 percent from 2011 through 2021. Eighty seven percent. It's a sobering statistic that needs repeating. Already this year, more than 1,300 of America's children and teenagers have been killed by firearms. This month, CNN is telling some of their stories, stories like that of 16-year-old Isaiah Carter, who was gunned down near his high school in Baltimore in March. His mother describes Isaiah as empathetic and a role model for his younger brother and sister. In high school, Isaiah joined the Air Force Junior Reserve, hoping to join the Air Force once he graduated. His mother wants you to know that, quote, Isaiah was your kid your daughter, your son. Please read the CNN series that profiles America's youngest victims at CNN.com. We'll be back. A memorial service today for the late Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein of California, held in San Francisco, the city where she was born and where her historic political career began. Former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi, Senate Majority Leader Chuck Schumer, and Vice President Kamala Harris were among those who paid tribute to the Trailblazer. Feinstein served more than 30 years in the U.S. Senate, making her the longest serving female senator in American history. She was 90 years old when she passed. If you ever miss an episode of the lead, you can listen to the show once you get your podcast. Our coverage continues now with Wolf Blitzer in the Situation Room. I will see you later tonight on AC360. Quality sleep is essential, and that's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. So you can choose what's right for you whenever you like. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature. Quiets their snores. Sleep Number does that. Sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on Sleep Number limited edition smart beds for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. Now streaming exclusively on Max, a new CNN flash talk about the album that has Nashville talking, Call Me Country, Beyonce and Nashville's Renaissance. Watch it at max.com slash callmecountry. Max subscription required.